Bibles, please turn to Titus chapter 2. If you study um, Paul's letters in the New Testament, all 13 of them, you'll find the same themes, the same foundational theology that informs everything he instructs and teaches that the man is relentless about the power and centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what his victory means for the individual, for the church, and for human history, for the universe. No one can navigate the world, period, without knowing and believing what Jesus showed to the Apostle Paul. And Paul's passion for the message he proclaims to Titus is the result of this. It's the result of something happening that is so massive, it cannot be denied. The grace of God that fully saves sinners has now appeared in the world. That appearance informs everything. It changes everything. Let me take you back in our minds to 1 Timothy 1 and the paragraph that introduced us to really the theme of the pastoral letters. Paul said something there that informs everything he's pushing for in both of his letters to Timothy and the letter to Titus. And if we forget this line, we won't hear anything in these letters correctly. This is 1 Timothy 1, 8 and the first part of verse 9. Paul wrote, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Everything that those not redeemed by Jesus Christ are. That means at least two things. That sentence means at least two things. One, the law of God does not apply to those who are already just. It's not a rule book they are required to live by, nor is it the means by which they are made just or righteous. Secondly, this must mean that commandments to the Christian, because there are those, don't work like the law did for an Israelite. In other words, a commandment to us is not a law that by obeying we gain the promises of the covenant and by disobeying we are condemned. That's not how commandments work for the Christian. We do not gain our life by obeying them and we are not condemned by disobeying them because we in the new covenant are already just. Christ has made us so. The lawful use of the law then that Paul is talking about is using it as a means of convincing people that they don't have the ability to obey God and therefore they can't be reconciled to him by their works or by their effort. The law is a ministry of death now. It kills people. It lays them bare so that they go running ideally to Christ for salvation and for their rest. But then we read all through the New Testament, Jesus still gives us commands on how to live. So if my obedience doesn't make me acceptable to God and my disobedience doesn't condemn me, what is my motivation for obeying commands? How does God get people who are already accepted by him to obey him? And why would it matter? Paul's purpose in writing this letter to Titus was so that he could inform the church in Crete that in salvation, God desired to create a people who were zealous, excited about good works. But 
God's new covenant people aren't zealous for good works because they're the means of earning their salvation and acceptance from God. That's the means the false teachers were using to get people to obey and had been doing in Ephesus also. God's new covenant people are zealous for good works because what Jesus has done is so amazing and so sufficient and so complete and so freeing that works have become a means of displaying His grace now, not His demands. Good works aren't even the same thing they used to be before Jesus died. They have a completely different reason and meaning and purpose. We live right now in the age of the reign of grace, where the good works to which God calls His people are produced by continually hearing that our salvation has already been accomplished. They are lived out by people who are already accepted by God. They are not evidence that we are good. They are evidence that God is good. Let me pray and we'll walk through this passage together. Father, for your name's sake and for the faith and hope and joy and peace of your people and everyone who would believe in you, Please help me preach your word. Consume me so that that is what I do in these next moments. I ask for your Holy Spirit, and I ask and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, there's another four here that kicks off verse 11, which means we need to back up a little bit so that we understand properly what follows. Verse 11 comes in Titus 2 after nine verses of commands to Christian people. Older men, older women, younger women, younger men, the preaching elder, and Roman slaves that were a part of the church in Crete. And we found that the collective reason for these commands, for these commands, was so that the word of God may not be defiled, in verse 5, so that opponents would have nothing evil to say about us, the preachers, in verse 8, and so that in everything about our lives we would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That's the why of good works for the Christian, to display the glory, the beauty of God's word for, because in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Notice how in verse 11, Paul makes it seem as though the appearance of the grace of God is that doctrine summarized that's worth adorning back in verse 10. Grace is the doctrine of God our Savior, and it has appeared. It's come. It's been made known. But grace is a concept, right? It's a, it's a thing. It's a truth. How has it appeared? In the person of Jesus Christ for sinners. Paul said the exact same thing, just a little bit differently, back in 2 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, didn't he? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, 
which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The appearance of Jesus is the appearance of God's grace that has brought salvation for all people. And since, in 1 Timothy 1, 2, 4, God desires all people to be saved and brought to the knowledge of the truth, sending Jesus is how he brings that purpose about. It's how he goes about accomplishing it. That's what grace is. Grace is literally the appearance of salvation for all people in Christ. But notice what this grace, what this truth, this appearing does in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. This is an amazing verse. It's an amazing verse because it reveals literally how God's people become godly, right? How they learn to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, how they learn to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, the kind of life he was describing in verses 2 through 10. Here's how. Are you ready? This is the big how. How are God's people trained for all of this, for Christianity, basically? Easy. Grace. Grace accomplishes all that in us. Grace trains us. Grace guarantees the forming of the heart and the doing of those works which will glorify God. So where good works are lacking, what is needed? More grace. This shouldn't surprise us. It really shouldn't. We already know, we've already read in these letters that the law, the law has not been laid down for the just. That's not how it works. So law's not going to produce the righteousness that God requires. Law is not going to train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Law is not going to train us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's interesting. We always thought it was the law that like informed you and kept you aware of what you were supposed to be doing and motivated you to do it by hearing it. But only grace does that. Grace does that. Grace has to be the message. Grace trains the just, not the law. My goodness, isn't that strange? This is crystal clear in verses 11 and 12 that grace trains us to be godly. And self-control. No, you preach too much grace, people lose self-control. No, they don't. No, they don't. They just quit worrying about what arrogant Christians think of them. Right? But what, what, what does, how is the, you would think something so clear would be very common knowledge. Like when you hear the law being used to train you, you would say, no, 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 the, the law doesn't train me, grace does, because it's so clear. And yet when you preach grace, 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 what do people do? What's, what's the concern? Yeah, but the grace stuff is really nice, but what about the good works we're supposed to be doing? Right? Aren't we supposed to be doing good works? Well, how do you think good works are going to get done? Right? More law? Make sure you preach the law so that people do good works. No, 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 no. That's not God's way. 
Law doesn't train for godliness. Grace trains for godliness. If the law was brought in to increase the trespass, Romans 5.20, it must be that grace decreases the trespass in verse 12. So what is grace? In other words, does that mean, if I say that, that which Romans 5.20 says, the law was brought in to increase the trespass and grace decreases it apparently in verse 12, does that mean that grace reduces the number of trespasses and sins that we do mathematically. So where there's law preached, it increases the trespass, like people sin more, believe it or not. But if you preach grace, the trespass goes down. So does that mean that I will sin less mathematically, numerically? I don't think so. I mean, it could be, but I don't, I don't think that's the, the point that's being made here. I think it means under the reign of grace, nobody's counting anymore. Right? Who's counting our forgiven sinfulness? Who's counting it? Who's keeping the record? Because it isn't Christ. It's finished. Is it the accuser? Is it me? Who's counting now? We're counting. Because we refuse to believe that the gospel is as good as the Bible clearly says it is. Beloved, your sins are no longer being held against you. Believer, your sins are no longer being held against you. It is finished. What is grace? My goodness, what is it? How is it so great? How is it so good? We need to know this rather than just read over it because grace is doing something here. It's, it's active. It's the impetus of what the whole letter is calling for. A people who are zealous for good works. In verse 14, grace is the unearned favor of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ by which he forgives all our sins and gives us all his son's righteousness as a gift so that we are completely reconciled to and accepted by God as his own beloved child. Romans 5.16, to get specific, calls it a free gift. Those words have meaning. A free gift, nothing has been done to earn it. There is no payment for it. It is a free gift. Now, the question is in Titus, how does that, how does a free gift train us to renounce ungodliness, renounce worldly passions, live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who will usher in the final and forever age. Grace trains us for godliness because it assures us that all the counting is done and God actually, truly, really loves us. God motivates by promise, not by force. Grace does something to my heart that so comforts and thrills me that I am filled with joy and thanksgiving 
and relief. Every problem we face as believers, be it with sin, doubt, whatever it is, comes back to not believing and or forgetting grace. All of them. See, there's a problem. Until grace is embraced in my heart, there will be a problem with every single one of my good works. All of them. God wants me zealous for good works, not works that I think are earning my salvation. So how does he go about accomplishing that in me? In, in the midst of my doubt and unbelief and conscience that's messed up that continues to defile everything I do because I don't believe yet that God accepts me. Grace, that's how he goes about it. Just showers me with it. Just showers me with it. So the gospel is, it's the shower of grace. Grace promises me that I no longer have to be afraid of God or impress or, or earn his love and his acceptance. It promises me that God has forgiven me and accepted me in Christ. And it guarantees me that I will have this inheritance he's promised to me. Grace trains me because it lets me spend all the money before the check even hits my account. It will be there. Go ahead and splurge. The money's coming. Good works for the believer are the unlimited ability to give to others what God has so richly given to us. Love, kindness, patience. My goodness. Patience with each other. Hope, peace, provision, forgiveness, self-control, dignity, integrity, on and on it goes. We're playing with house money now. Beloved, we can't lose. Have you ever noticed how excited you get to do work or to accomplish something when it's on your own terms? When you're not doing it for anybody else, you're doing it because you want to accomplish something, right? You just want to do this. There's a thrill that comes with a job well done when it wasn't a requirement from anyone else. Work that you're not doing to get a paycheck, right? Work that you just, I just want to do this. I, uh, you know, you, you want to finish the deck because you look forward to family cookouts, things like this. Grace is a free gift of forgiveness and love and mercy and eternal salvation from God held out in the hands of his son to us. It saves, it seals, it guarantees I will receive all that God has promised. It trains us by assuring us. See, to answer that question, how does grace train me? I need to understand what grace is before I try to answer the question. It trains us by assuring us that we're fully accepted so that we work undefiled from faith, from joy, from thanksgiving, rather than fear. Right? Your, think about this for a minute. This is just, just, your willingness and excitement about giving is based on how much money you have. You ever thought about that? It's so much more fun to give when you're sitting on a pile of money. Like, here, have some of this. Enjoy it. No, no, no. Don't. I want to help you. I want to buy this for you. I want to do this for you. Let me do it. Why? Because God told us and it's always better to give than to receive. Right? God would rather pour out on you than get from you. My goodness, let that inform good works. That's what the text is saying. Everybody's trying to give to him. He's like, no, no, I'd rather give to you. Don't do that for me. 
Pour it out on your neighbor. God has money. God has everything. I completely lost my place. Where where am I here? <laughs> Goodness sake. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, it, it it saves us, it seals us, it guarantees we'll receive all that God has promised, it, it purifies us. This has been a theme in Titus, and now Paul is telling you how this is done. It purifies us so that nothing we do is defiled by the pride of trying to save ourselves. Right? Have you ever wondered why the heavy hand of guilt from the pulpit to do more, to be more, or from books or from classes or from one another, why the heavy hand of guilt to do more, commit more, to, to, to be more, why does that only work for a little while? Why do we need a new book every couple years on how radical you're really supposed to be if you want to be a Christian? Why, why do we need that every couple years? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Right? When you see a marriage conference that happens every year, maybe it doesn't work. Right? It just, right? So, so what does teaching have to do? It has to get more threatening. Why? Because as Christians, in light of the text like this, we still believe you want to get people to act, you gotta lay it on them. Guilt and law do not train people to renounce their passions. If you're struggling with being selfish and I pour on you law about not being selfish, do you know what it's going to do? Make you more selfish. Because all it's going to do is highlight the fact that you're selfish. That's what law does. Here's seven steps to stop being selfish. That's seven steps to being more selfish is what they should honestly call that. Guilt and law do not train us. They do not train us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. The heart of the believer in the gospel, in grace, is only awakened to these things by the message of grace, apparently. So that is what has to be preached, right? Look at verse 15. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Titus, he says. But whenever you talk about grace, well, what happens? Someone, if you talk about it a lot, inevitably says, but what about good works? And when have I ever said that since grace saves us, we don't do good works? That's never been said. Ever. We corrupt what we hear. With our unbelief. We defile it. We are so afraid of grace that we literally can't hear it without thinking, yeah, but I got to do something, right? That's not the right motivation for good works. I don't understand why we think that when you talk about grace, you're ignoring or talking about something mutually exclusive from good works, right? Well, the pastor, he talks about grace. I'll focus on the other side of it. I'll focus on the works that we have to do. But what is Titus teaching us since 1, 15 and 16? 
if we try to focus on works without grace, the works produced will not glorify God. They might be good. They won't bring glory to God. People will not be trained for godliness. Instead, technically speaking, their sin will increase because they'll not only try to be following laws that they can't, they'll be apparently making up more laws they can't even keep and follow. How did Acts 15.10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Why are you trying to teach Gentiles the law now? We couldn't follow it. What makes you think they can follow it? Jesus says, you travel over land and sea and make twice a child of hell a proselyte you have than you are yourselves. Our natures are afraid of grace. So we have to lash out with good works. It sounds a lot more pious to talk about what you should do than what you've gotten. Nobody brags about their welfare check, hopefully. Right? You, you would brag only if you earned the money. What are you bragging about if you didn't earn the money? It's almost like grace takes away all the bragging. I think, I, I, I think, I think we believe that really, if you back us into a corner, we're saved by a mixture of grace and good works, technically. And we believe that so deeply, it's so ingrained in our natures that when we hear grace without hearing about good works, we have to throw in what we believe is the other half of the salvation thing so that it not gets ignored, it doesn't get ignored. Right? So, no, 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 there's more to this now, which, which notice, if you were talking to a dying person, you wouldn't say that. They were on their deathbed and you know they're going to die in the next 30 seconds. You won't mention works one bit. If you just believe, you will be saved. Please call out to him right now. He'll save you. What do we think the thief on the cross is doing in the Bible? Why is that man there at the most important moment in human history? So that at the end of the day, we realize what actually saves. Just faith in Christ. It'll do it. It'll do it. Every time. Every person. Every time. Grace, if, if, if we're, grace saves. Period. Period. If we're talking about what saves, no, nobody should be qualifying grace. Grace is not separate from good works for the believer. That, it, that, that's not a, that's not a problem, right? In fact, where there is grace, the good works are already assumed because they'll be there. It's training you. They'll, they'll be produced. Because it's grace that does the work of producing them. Too often we do that backwards. We assume that everyone knows that technically, yes, technically you're saved by grace. What we need to be focused on, however are the works we're supposed to be doing because of that. The change, the progress, the maturity. So everybody feels like they have to apologize on some level or excuse or justify this message of grace. Because lest somebody think, of course, unless they're dying in the next 30 seconds, that they have to do, they, they, they could not do a certain amount of good works and still be saved. Let's make sure nobody believes grace is that good. Again, unless you're dying. 
If you have more than 30 seconds to live, it's a whole different story. It's a whole different gospel you preach when somebody's right near death. And you know that. As though the person you're talking to at the store might not die on the way home in two minutes. How should Christians be zealous for good works? Absolutely. Now, how do they become zealous for good works? The message of grace. Grace is a, is a truth that comes from God that's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what grace is. Grace is not, well, it's also works. No, no, no. Grace is grace. Works are works. Grace trains the just, not the law. First Timothy 1. So don't preach law when good works are lacking. My goodness, it's powerless. Grace has brought salvation. That means the saving has been done. It's been taken care of. Grace literally, fully saves whoever believes it. Salvation Done, taken care of, addressed, finished, accomplished. But again, you can't get people to do stuff if you don't have something to bargain with. So you gotta rein it in a little bit. That's what we do, that we're not better than old covenant Israel and the Pharisees. That's what they did. If they're not going to get it, we're gonna have to add to this so that they're sure to follow the rules. It's the same thing, but it's even more tragic in light of grace. We salvation should never be in doubt for anyone who believes ever ever I don't have the right to do that not at all nobody has the right to use a lack of works as evidence that you might not be saved what's in question when your salvation is being doubted what's in question your ability or God's grace we don't deny outrightly because we know it sounds wrong that you're saved by grace and not by works. So what do we do? Since we can't say that, what do we say? Well, are you doing enough good works, though? Are there enough to prove that you're really saved? Because apparently the only way to prove salvation is by the works that you've done. So it didn't matter that Jesus told the thief he'd be with him in paradise he wouldn't have known that because he's like, well, what about the works I'm supposed to be doing? That's how they get you. Are you doing enough good works, though, to show that you're actually saved? And are they good ones or are they just little piddly ones that anybody could do? Are you radical enough? Right. Right. Did you did you buy a car that was a little nicer than what you needed? You might not love Jesus enough. You might be more satisfied by the smell of leather than you are by Jesus. That, you need to ask yourself that. Do you enjoy that pizza too much? Were you, were you giving glory to God when you had that orange juice? Did you, right, it, it, do you see? How many good works have to be done in one day to still qualify? Right, how, how many? How many good works do I have to do before I have the right to feel assurance? Tell me, give me a number. How many good works per week? And what level are we talking? How does it, again, just the fruit of the Spirit, like in my attitude, or, or do I have to give a certain 
percentage? Do I have to do this many hours of volunteer work? Uh, or do I have to take a mission trip this many miles from home? Do I, do I, can I only watch movies with this many customers, not this many? How, how do I, what sins, like, is it okay to watch movies with Harry Potter in it because it's magic? Uh, is that not right, but you can watch movies with like adultery and murder in it? Like, which sins make me decide what movies I can't watch? Somebody tell me, because I need to feel assurance that I'm saved. The rules we make are stupid. You can go to movies with this sin all day, but not this one. That's different. Oh, come on. Man, come on. Are you doing enough? All right. How much? How long? How often? What level? All for naught. All for naught. Grace will train. Grace will train. God has it under control. God has it under control. Romans 14.4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Right to, aha, see? You're going to stand before the master. You better do enough. And he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand. So if you're going to evaluate another believer and their level of commitment, the Lord will make them stand. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. What is that? What is the Lord is able to make him stand? You know what that is? That's grace. It's always there. It's always there. Even the most dedicated of believers can't get away from it. Do you know that? You think that what's saving you is different than what's saving the guy that's much better at this thing than you are? The best of us is dependent, is as dependent on grace as the worst of us. Now, the hound of heaven is relentless. <laughs> relentless, beloved. Remember when Peter asked what John's responsibilities were going to be after he heard what was going to happen to him? And he said, uh, what about this one? <laughs> what's, what's, what, is he going to have the same responsibilities? What does Jesus say? In John 21, 22, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Nothing stands between you and God, believer. Nothing. Your salvation is in no hand but God's. And the voice of Jesus will guide you also. You follow him. Eyes front on Jesus. He'll get you home. Good works are the result of the grace that saves. They are not the means in any way, shape, or form of obtaining it. Grace has already addressed obtaining salvation. Grace has already addressed that. It brings salvation. Not potential salvation. Salvation. Grace will make you and I zealous to do good works. It will make us zealous to live well. Don't complicate it. Trust it. Trust it. Don't add in quantity and quality. Just trust the scriptures. It, it, it creates division when we don't believe it because, again, because we can't help but create levels. So, so it's like there's, there's 
measly good works, then there's the heavy hitter good works, and so only the heavy hitters get to give the testimonies, right? You, you only hear the testimony about the person that, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have any money left. I had, uh, you know, $200 in my bank account, so I gave $200 to the mission, and I came out uh, the next day, and there was, a, uh, there was a check for $200 from a person I didn't even know in Montana in my mailbox that said they thought I needed it. You never bring up the guy that says, I gave $200 and they shut my electric off. Why don't we hear from that guy? Grace doesn't need qualified by its recipients. Does that make sense? I mean, meaning like, would it make sense that the people that receive it are the ones that would qualify it? That's like you giving me a million dollars to pay off all my debt, and then I show up at your house the next morning to help you manage your portfolio. No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Thanks. I'm good. <laughs> In verse 13, grace trains us while we're waiting for the second appearance of our great God and Savior at his return. So we're, we're trained by grace so well in the present age that we will be ushered into the age that begins when he returns and will never end. Grace is sufficient in the waiting, beloved. And waiting is where life is. Waiting is where life happens, right? What's sufficient for, what's sufficient from when I believe to when Jesus comes? One thing. Grace. It's grace that trains me. That holds me steady. You see, Jesus Gave himself for us in verse 14. That's a pretty substantial offering for me. Gave himself for us. Your salvation is not a question of what you can do. Your salvation is a question of the sufficiency of the gift that was given to pay for it. When you doubt it, you're not really doubting you. You're doubting Jesus Therefore, my works that I would do and do are defiled by that. Here, God, here's my gift. I don't think Jesus is enough. Keep it. You have your reward. Gave himself for us in verse 14 to redeem us from all lawlessness. So he can do that. And to purify for himself, that what, is, what has Paul been talking about to Titus? Not being defiled, being purified. Who are to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Beloved, did you hear all that? By his life, death, and resurrection, all him, Jesus redeems us from all lawlessness. That's done in one shot of blood. And purifies us. Washes us clean. Grace redeems us from lawlessness. The law does not redeem us from lawlessness. Grace purifies us. Good works do not make us more clean. The cure for our lawlessness, for our disobedience, is not law. It's grace. There's no power in a command to make us obey it. None. That's why grace is the means of being trained to obey God, not the commandments themselves. Isn't that strange? 
You think he'd say, for the commandment has appeared. Go back to those verses and look at it. No, 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 no. After the commandments, you learn that grace trains. Commandments don't train. All the commandment does is inform us of what is required. It doesn't have any batteries to make us do it. Parents, we know this. Go clean your room. Does that make the room clean? No. That's why you have to say it 90 trillion times in one day. Go clean your room. Well, I would if you would yell at me. Why doesn't it work? It's clear. Do it. Ah. All right, I will. I'll put this over here. Right? It does, there are no batteries in a command. None. A commandment is better at showing us what we're unable to do than it is at making us do what we're supposed to do. That's the function of commands in the Bible. Do this. Oh, you can't? Come to me. That's why I'm here. That's what the commandment is doing. It's pursuing you, hounding you to your need for a Savior. When Jesus says in Matthew, therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, it's not a challenge to become perfect. It's him telling you, you think you can be perfect? Because that's what's required. Looks like you're going to need me to do something while I'm here. Right? I don't, the appearance of a commandment begs for the appearance of grace or it won't happen. I don't go to the commandment when I hear it and stick it on my refrigerator to remind myself every day that that's what I need to do. I go to Jesus when I hear a commandment. Forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. God, seriously? How in the world am I going to do that? If you don't forgive the trespasses against you, my father won't forgive you. Then I'm done. I don't hear that and think, oh man, i got to get more serious about forgiving. Good luck. What is he telling you? You need me to step in here and do all the forgiving that you can't do. Because that's what makes me want to forgive people at all. Again, you, you would think that the, the appearance of the commandment on the pages of Scripture would be what trains us to follow it, right? Look, I've told you what you're supposed to do. You have it right in front of you. You have the Holy Spirit now, so go do it. It's very clear, but we're not told that that's what trains us. It, it's the appearance of grace, the giving of Jesus. That one event, way back then, before I was even born, trains God's people to live correctly. Grace is a message. It's, it's, it's not a commandment, unless you're saying it is a command to repent and believe. But a commandment cannot be obeyed unless we look away from it and to Christ. The commandments are never meant to be the focus. Jesus is. So it must be then that grace actually produces obedience. Now, again, it won't produce it at the visible rate that law does. Right? It'll be a lot harder to track because it's on God's terms, not the preachers or the Sunday school teachers or the authors. 
They'll make you feel like you, you, you've never been saved in your life. Right? So, so grace just doesn't produce results at the rate we would like it to. But thank God salvation isn't in our hands then. The only thing more harsh than the holiness of God is the arrogance of a blind sinner. It will take faith to believe this. It will take faith to believe this. That obedience comes from sitting enamored at the feet of Jesus. Like Mary, letting his word of grace wash over you again and again and again because he's in no hurry. Because the work is done. Trusting that he will do the good works in us that he desires, producing them by his spirit rather than from working. That will take faith to believe. We must look away from ourselves. Look beyond the commandment if you wish to obey it. Right? If you really want to glorify God in your obeying, stop trying to obey and believe. You, you couldn't look beyond the commandment with the law, right? Because the law is all there is when you're under the economy of the law. If that's the way you want to be justified, there's no looking beyond it to anything. If you look behind the law, the only thing you're going to see is the fact that you're not allowed in because you can't obey this. You're going to see justice. You're going to see the demand. If you look behind the law, that's what you'll see. Do this or else. There's no grace to be found in a law. Law is a demand. Right? De- again, demands don't train. If, if they did, hearing that you should clean your room would make you clean your room. It doesn't. And that's all the law revealed, what was required of you. It was not a message of salvation. It was never meant to be. It was a message of condemnation. To push Israel to the Messiah, to push the world to Jesus. And apparently... It is unable to train us to do the righteousness God requires. If by doing it you became righteous enough for God to accept you, there's no need for the New Testament. If God says grace can do that, then why are we questioning it and qualifying it? It's doubt. It's doubt that defiles the power of grace in our hearts, not grace itself. Why is the problems in the message? Like, Like grace is poison if you let too much of it get in you, it'll kill you. Are like we're that arrogant? Beloved, we even defile grace in our hearts. We need a savior. We need a savior. We've deceived ourselves if we think we have it within us to do what this God requires. Right? Beloved, when the one law was don't eat that, what did we do? Ate it. The law does not motivate good works for the glory of God. It motivates good works as a means of salvation and acceptance, which means it runs counter to the gospel. If I do this, then I know I'm saved. Like it, It's not just heretical to believe that works save you at the beginning. It'd be heretical to believe they save you at any point. So you only have the assurance of salvation in that is if you're pleased with your own progress. So assurance doesn't come from waiting on Christ. Assurance comes from 
having enough progress to measure that you have the right, the privilege to feel good. Right? Well, that's, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus is only a means to an end in that equation. He, grace motivates good works by filling us with so much salvation and acceptance and joy that we want to be like the one who saved us because we love him. And that's because he loved us first. And that just thrills my soul to the point of, I want to live even as he lived. I want to walk in the light as he is in the light. I, I want to be wherever he is. And where he is is holy. And I don't want my flesh, these interruptions. I don't want to defile it. I just, I just, just, I want to be near him. I want to be close to him. That impulse apparently spills over to your neighbor, right? And, and then there's forgiveness and love and kindness and patience. And why? Because the closer you, you become like what you behold. Right? It, it's, we're zealous for good works because what we have in Christ is so good. I mean, so, so don't automatically think that the desire to please God means that all is well, right? How do you plan on going about doing that is the question, pleasing God. Because if grace isn't training you for the path you're on, you're not zealous for that which God has designed you to be. So do you serve God because you want to please him or do you serve God because... You already believe he's pleased with you in Christ. That's a whole different world to live in. You don't have to worry about enough obedience being done there. God has it under control. Right? If he's not getting good works now for salvation, what are they for? Right? Just let God handle it for you and for your neighbor. Last week we heard a lot of commands about our conduct in verses 2 through 10. How do we think we have any hope of obeying these things? We don't. So the focus will have to be on grace. And grace will train us to do it. We don't measure the progress of the hearer if we're going to measure something. Really, you'd want to measure the content of the one speaking to you. Beloved, you will draw your confidence and your hope from one of two places. Yourself and your works or from Christ. And where does the scripture say you should draw your hope from? You and your good works or the coming of Jesus Christ? And if Jesus wanted our focus on our performance, he wouldn't be the exclusively stated source of all our hope. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Right, because the word of grace in the gospel is final. That's why verse 15 is there. When somebody butts you, shut them up, Paul says to Titus. He said that literally back in verse 11. You don't question this. Nobody gets to qualify this. Nobody gets to... It, only an arrogant fool would question the necessity of focusing on grace at this point, now that we know this, Right? Fools that will do so much damage to God's people, they must be silenced in 1.11. The preaching elders to which Paul wrote, Timothy and Titus, are to declare these things with all authority, letting no one, doesn't matter who it is, disregard them. No one has the right to disregard the preacher when he speaks the word of grace, no matter who it is, whether it's me or somebody else. That's the only time Paul speaks that way about the preacher as a person. 
let no one disregard you. Yet, if the message of grace is what you're declaring, that's how massive this is. Suffer no, no opponent of it. None. This is the reign of grace. The declaration of grace is the means by which God makes his people zealous to do good works. Period. God desires to have a people who make him known through the proclamation of his gospel and the doing of works that reveal its truth. Therefore, the works we're commanded to do are works of submission and kindness and forgiveness and patience and mercy and love. Why? Why are there no commands about how you should place a cup on the altar or a a dish here or this curtain or the color of that tent? Because we're not displaying separation anymore. So all the commands look like what we've gotten. And we've been brought near by the blood of this one who died for us. So all the commands reflect that. Right? Why isn't it more specific? Because we're not trying to earn anything. We're trying to display something now. And if the rules are too tight, what does it display? We think, oh, but if the rules, what? What's going to happen? If the grace that saves has appeared, what are we afraid of? What's going to happen? Well, uptight people are going to be upset with your behavior. That's what's going to happen. And in so doing, make a mockery of Christ and disregard the message of grace. We should give that no quarter. Paul's letter to Titus reveals that the appearance of Jesus is the appearance of grace for sinners. And grace has the power to produce people who finally do good works that are pleasing to God. Who finally, by their works, make God's glory as a Savior known to the world. I mean, again, think of our... How else are we going to do something like love our enemies? Oh, we hate our enemies. We just say you have to love your enemies. But we, we hate them. They're ruining everything. They're ruining all the places we put our hope in. So we hate them. Well, how how do I... Because Jesus loved his enemies. You just focus on that. Really? Yeah. Or I could tell you love your enemies. Or I could tell you to clean your room. Same diff. Right? Hatred for our enemies tells the world something about us. They don't value what I value. Right? It tells us something about what we despise, and that's all fine and good, but it's not saving anybody. And what is the heart of God? To save. We've hijacked the message with ourselves. Right? It's, 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 I, I want to be a, I don't want to be within a million miles of any form of Christianity that makes it look like the people that believe it don't need Jesus as much as everybody else does. There's not a single command in the Bible you and I can obey. Not a single one. Why have we made the message about obedience? Do we think there are commands that we don't need grace from God? To ever have any hope of obeying? Beloved, what you and I can obey in our own strength will never please God. Because to the extent we are able, we are not proclaiming Christ. So God has purposely made everything So that you're not able to do it. So that the message is not your performance, which doesn't save, but Christ who does save. 
This is what he's done. That's why grace is given to train us. So that our message, you see, behavior goes right with doctrine for Paul. Why does grace train? So that the message doesn't get infected by performance. None of our works are good. They're filthy rags. Until they're cleansed of our belief that they can save us. That they're doing something to earn my salvation. That God will accept us because of them. None of the things we do will do that. Not even the moral things. Beloved, we've married our gospel to our politics so much that there are people that actually think if you're a conservative, you're going to heaven. They're not the same thing. No program is. There's the gospel that saves, and every other message is sand. If outward adherence to a rule was all that was necessary, why did Jesus come and die? So the message for the world is not, this is God's law, you should be doing it, but you're not, so you're going to hell. The message for the world is, none of us has obeyed God's law, but none of us can. So stop trying to earn your salvation, be it to God or anyone else, with your behavior. Stop it. God has sent Jesus to be gracious to us and forgive us because we cannot obey him. There is forgiveness now for sinners. Come to Jesus. And apparently, against all our better judgment, this will also train people to be godly. Like grace is sufficient for everything to do with Christianity. It's amazing. The salvation and the goodness, all of it. It's almost like we should proclaim the gospel of grace then and quit sweating over the works. Like God has the works he wants under control. And he doesn't need our endless qualifications. He's going to produce them. It's okay. His quantity, his rate, his quality, his time. Let it be. Look at Christ. We live in the age of the reign of grace where the good works to which God calls his people are produced by continually hearing that our salvation has already been accomplished. We need this message more than we could possibly imagine, beloved, on our best days. Our best days. Sermons are so long lately. It's noon. We only did two songs. I'm still talking. And I would say I'm sorry, but that would be disingenuous because I'm not stopping yet. So I'm, I just, I want you to know I realize that it's long. That's the only reason I, I just hope you'll bear with me. That's. Do we honestly believe our need for grace changes from one day to the next? I need it less today than I needed it yesterday based on the works that we're doing on a given day. Do we really believe that? I I really need grace today. You didn't yesterday. Right? You didn't Monday. You won't need it by five today. Beloved, Jesus is for you. He's for you. You got to stop. You gotta stop acting like his back is still turned. It's not. It's not. It never will be again. 
He's forgiven you. Right? None of us has lived up to this. He did it anyway. Time and time again, we're going to find ourselves on the floor of our souls. Most of us wondering what in the world is wrong with us. Here's the thing. You know what's down there on the floor of your emptiness and disillusion and guilt? You know what's down there? Grace. Grace. There's not a pit you can fall into that grace can't go deeper than. I'm paraphrasing Corey Ten Boom. There is no pit so deep that Christ is not deeper still. Your soul is safe until he appears. Take Jesus to the bank. It's done. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Acts 20, 32. Yeah, the Bible says the same thing all over the place. You are his child believer. And you can't outrun him with your sinfulness. For every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. All that cry out to him today for salvation belong to him as much as the one who's known him for a hundred years. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't want to hear it. But more importantly, neither does Jesus. No condemnation.